This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Pretty much anything and everything that's on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send the questions in that way. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use a hands-free feature on your phone. And today I'll be teaching Isaiah chapters 44 and the first eight verses of chapter 45. A really fascinating study, especially the prophecy that's there. Uh, That'll be tonight. And of course, tomorrow Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. So ladies, it's your day. If there's any questions or any encouragement that you need, Paula will be here and she will be ready. Let's get right to questions that have been sent in while we await some phone calls. Here's a question from Jeremy. He says, uh, Pastor on in Matthew 24, 40 is the two men in a field uh, describing the rapture. Let me read the passage, Jeremy, and then we'll talk about it. And I'm going to read actually 40 through 42. It says, Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Now, Jeremy, this is the Olivet Discourse. And this is, this is one of those places where it's really important to remember to whom Jesus is speaking, about which event he's speaking, and then we can make some applications, but we can also determine if these are things for us. Now, the rapture, of course, uh, is not at all in view here. This is Jesus talking about the the signs leading up to and then following, uh, we call it the Great Tribulation. And uh, in this particular passage, Jesus is prophesying uh, about an event uh, that will happen some 38 years from the the time Jesus is speaking. And that's when the Roman general Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem and uh, completely, completely destroyed it, absolutely devastated it. Um, And what he's saying is when the Romans come in, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, that one will be taken to judgment the other will escape. So he's just describing the general tenor of that particular judgment. He does the same thing. 
Now, before I go to the important part of this, Jeremy, what we need to know about the rapture of the church is it was a mystery that was given to the Apostle Paul. Prior to that time, the rapture had never been taught on in Scripture. Um, There were hints, there were pictures about it, but certainly no detail. And then one day the Apostle Paul got a an epiphany from God, a vision from God. And he said, I tell you uh, a mystery. Uh, uh, In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be caught up to be together with the Lord in the air. And he proceeds it by saying, uh, we will not die, but we will be changed, transformed in the process. Pastor friend of mine actually has that verse in his nursery, over, over his nursery, uh, we will not all sleep, and, and that's the King James meaning die. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Uh, but but the, the rapture is something that we got no complete information on until the Apostle Paul revealed the mystery. Jesus hinted at it in John chapter 14. There are lots of pictures of the rapture uh, for believers and then Jews going through the Great Tribulation, being preserved through it uh, in the Old Testament but this has nothing at all to do with rapture. One of the problems, Jeremy, and, and it's typified by your question here, is that there are a lot of people who teach that this is the rapture because it sounds like it. One will be taken, the other will be left behind. And But, but this is judgment. This whole context of the Olivet Discourse is God's judgment, God's wrath coming upon the people of Israel. So no rapture in this one at all. Um I hope that clears it up for you, Jeremy. Here is a question from Phyllis. She wants to know, what is meant by the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Um, Phyllis, as you know, when when uh, Paul died and he was died, he was stoned to death just outside of Lystra. Uh, that's the, the, the event that is referenced in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And when he says, I went to the third heaven, what he means is that he went to the uh, dwelling place of God. Uh, the first heaven, it doesn't mean there are three heavens. It, it doesn't, you know, uh, Mormons have distorted this passage. The first heaven would, would simply mean the atmosphere that we can see, the sky. The second heaven would be uh, what we would call outer space. We see it from satellites and capsules as they go up. Um, but the third heaven is way beyond that. And that's the place where God lives. And that's where Paul was taken. He died. He went to heaven. He saw Jesus. He saw things he said that were inexpressible, things that man is not permitted to tell. So not only did he not have words that were inexpressible, but man isn't permitted to tell. And that's where he was in the third heaven, in the, the abode of God. So that's all he meant. Uh, Imagine, Phyllis, how upset he must have been uh, when God told him, well, you're only here for a a minute. You've got to go back. I'm not done with you. Uh, He would have thought, I don't want to go back, having seen uh, the the absolute beauty and the majesty of things that we can only dream about. So Paul had been there. Now, here's uh, uh, something that's important. You know, in the last question that Jeremy wrote in, the last verse, the reason I include it, said, so watch out for yourselves. Well, Paul's experience 
going to heaven tells us to be on on the watch as well. Because the time is coming, and we don't know when that time is coming. A time is coming when we're going to be caught up to be with him in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever. Now, if the rapture would happen today, as an example, it's probably not because it says it'll come at a time when you think not, so I might have just blown it. But But when the rapture happens then we're going to be immediately with him. Then those of us who are raptured are going to come back with him seven years later and repopulate the earth. We will rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years and we will be with him in that wonderful battle that's described in Revelation chapter 19. So very important. We need to be ready for these things. No matter what, Paul having visited heaven. Can you imagine the motivation he had to endure all of the things that he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? You know, the beatings and the shipwrecks and the the scourgings and uh, the the persecution from within and from without and uh, being hungry and cold. And uh, uh, the only thing that could have propelled Paul that that kind of faithfulness was that vision of heaven that he had when he would have looked around and he would have seen, wow, this really is waiting for me. Now, he believed in heaven. Of course he did. But there's something different about seeing it. You know, we walk by faith and not by sight. Well, Paul was able to use what he saw with his own eyes. help him finish the course. And in 2 Timothy, the last letter he wrote, he could say with, I'm sure, great and godly pride, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. And Paul would have thought about those crowns that he'd seen every day. Now you and I, we have to see these things by faith. We just have to trust that they're magnificent. My study this coming Friday night, we see Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. He didn't care about the things on this earth. Well, that's the approach, the attitude and the heart that we who are Christians in these last days have to remember always. Keep your hearts a place of affection and your minds, the place of decision according to Colossians chapter 3 on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Here is a question from Mallory. Why can't women be pastors if Galatians 3.28 says there's no difference between men and women? A couple of things, Mallory. Um, Women can't be pastors because Uh, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it's really the Holy Spirit, uh, forbids it in in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Now, we might think that's draconian. We might think, well, well, we're a much more sophisticated, advanced culture. But, But you see, in the church, the church belongs to Jesus. He is the head of the church. Paul makes that really clear. Uh, We don't get a vote. God isn't interested in cultural norms. God isn't interested in, in justifying why he does something. 
We know this was a result of the curse. Uh, it was Eve who was deceived. This is sort of a consequence of her deception. And so he says women can't be pastors. Now, while there's no difference in God's eyes between men and women, there are different roles. Just like there are different offices in the church, there are different roles. And Mallory, the only office, the only office in the church, the only gifting in the church that is kept from a woman by God, who is the head of the church, Jesus is, is this one role of a pastor. For reasons known only to God, it's certainly not because we're smarter or we're more spiritual. It's not even that we're less easily deceived. For reason known only to God, he limited leadership roles in his church to men. Again, that's between you and the Lord to to wrestle with. Now, the other thing I want to say about this, Mallory, is that Galatians 3.28, the context there is salvation. The Galatians were no longer under law. They were free in Christ. And what they're saying is salvation is equal ground for everyone, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. So you can't take the passage from one scripture when Paul is dealing with with the problem of heresy that's going on in the Galatian churches and just apply that in general and say, well, there's no difference between men and women. Uh, The truth of of the matter, Mallory, is uh, I am certain Paula would be a much better pastor than I am. I am certain. I have met women. We have women Bible teachers in our church. And right off the top of my head, I can think of two of them that I think teach better than I do. But they can't be the pastor. They teach women. They use their teaching gift and counseling. It's just this one role. And Mallory, I get this question from time to time um, because this seems like it's so sexist uh, in the world that we live in. But I want you to equate your question with Eve's problem in the Garden of Eden. And Satan tempted her. Did God really say? I mean, the entire garden, as glorious and perfect as it was, beyond anything that we can comprehend, the whole thing was given completely to them, to Adam and Eve, for their pleasure, for their enjoyment. Out of everything that was given to them, God set aside one tree that belonged to him. Here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From that one tree you cannot eat. And Eve, with the help of the enemy, couldn't stay away from that one tree. Well, I know all these other trees are great. I know their fruit is great. And I know that that we have everything that we need. but, But that one tree, and this whole role of a pastor thing among many women in our day and age, It's the same thing. Women want what God says you can't have. The one thing, just one thing they're prevented from doing in the church, and that's being the pastor, having authority over men. It's the one thing they want, and somehow we decide that that's sort of unfair in the process, and it's it's no different than in the Garden of Eden. So, Mallory, I hope that makes sense to you, but please don't take Galatians chapter 3 
out of context. The context there is salvation. Jews were no longer under law, but they were free in Christ, and that applied to all of them. Equally, they were all on level ground. The cross of Jesus Christ is the one place where the ground is always level. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We'd love to have them. Or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Here's an anonymous question. Uh, He said, do people who die and go to heaven look down on us and guide us? I think it says somewhere in the Bible that they are witnesses. Uh, Anonymous, um, it does. You're thinking about uh, Hebrews chapter 12, following Hebrews 11, which is, uh, as I'm sure you know, the Hall of Fame of Faith, the examples of faithful men and women throughout the Old Testament who God sets up as an example. And then he opens chapter 12 by saying, therefore, chapter 12 is where God gets really practical. This is how you should live. Therefore, since we have a great cloud of witnesses, but but the difference is they're not witnesses of what we are doing. They're not looking at what we're doing. They are witnesses to us of the faithfulness of God. So, uh, to, to misunderstand that would give you the impression that, yeah, people in heaven are looking down. Remember, there's nothing sad going on in heaven right now. There's nothing evil, nothing impure. Uh, tears are wiped away. There's just, just, just beauty and glory. Now, if we were looking down on things of this earth when we were there, all of those promises would be void. We'd see the ugliness. We'd see the pain. We'd see the constant evil that man does to other men. We would see the lies and duplicity. That wouldn't be heaven. So no, they're not looking down on us, nor do they guide us. Now let me deal with that for a moment, Anonymous, because I think this is an important thing to understand. We have God the Holy Spirit in us to guide us. The superstitious notion that our parents are in heaven and they're directing our steps or that there are saints in heaven or Jesus's mother in heaven that we can pray to. All of that is blasphemy. We have God himself living in us for the purpose of direction. Not only do we have the spirit of God living in us to direct us, we have his word written by the Holy Spirit to direct us. Why in the world, even if it were possible, why in the world would we want to settle for somebody who lived here on earth to direct us? Again, I understand sort of the, 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 the collegial romanticism, but it's just not true. I tell people all the time that when we get to heaven, all we're going to be able to do is stare into those eyes blazing like the fire. We're going to stare into that face shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. No time to check out what's going on on the earth. I know it makes us feel strangely comfortable to to think that that's the case, but it really isn't. Hebrews chapter 12, they are witnesses to us of the faithfulness of God, but they're not witnesses of us. They're not watching what we're doing. 
they're an inspiration to us, not the other way around. So anonymous, I hope that's clear. Oh, here's a tough question, another anonymous. What is a gay person supposed to do if they can't change who they are attracted to? Uh, anonymous, this is going to sound harsh, but please bear with me for a moment. Um, they're expected to live celibate lives. If they are a Christian, they're supposed to live celibate lives. You know, we, we've made sex an idol in our culture. You can't possibly expect me to be celibate. Well, Paul was celibate. God did pretty well through him, didn't he? And forget just a gay person. If, if somebody is here and they're attracted to, to the opposite sex, that doesn't give them a right to have sex if they're not married. You know, God forbids sex outside of marriage, period. And then the only sex that he validates is that between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. We live in a fallen world, Anonymous, and it is true that there's a lot of people who are messed up. Wired wrong, it's not God's fault, it's the world that we live in. We get all of these constant messages bombarding us about how wonderful it is to come out publicly as homosexual and pursue a relationship, whatever makes you happy. But that's not a message that comes from God. So here's the thing. If you are attracted to someone of the same gender, then you've got to say no to that attraction. It's just that simple. And you do it because you love Jesus. You do it because he owns you. He bought you with a price. And there's no other alternative. So this is one of the things, if you are attracted to someone of the same gender, then your life needs to be spent pleasing God, living without sex. Now, I want to say something else as well, Anonymous. The idea that you can pray the gay away is nonsense. The, 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 the harm that's been done by so-called conversion therapy that churches were involved in for a long time is a shame. It's a, a blot on the church's reputation. Instead of telling people to fall in love with Jesus, we lay hands on him and shout and cast out demons and do all kinds of nonsensical stuff. We create a legalistic environment. And it only serves to condemn people. Truth is, if you are attracted to someone of the same sex, something is broken. But it's not you. It's the world that we live in. And so you have to make a decision. Do you want to fulfill the lusts of the flesh? Or do you want to lust after the things of the Spirit? And that's a good lusting, by the way. And it's a decision you have to make. It's a decision that we all have to make. There's just no other possible choices. And if we choose one, it means we're choosing Jesus and we'll spend forever with Jesus. If we choose the other, if we choose sin instead of Jesus, then we're going to spend forever separated from Jesus. It really is a matter of life or death. 
spiritually. And until we understand that on that basis, then we're never going to deal with our flesh as violently, as forcefully as we should. One of the reasons why all of this approval of these aberrant lifestyles is so dangerous. When we see these famous movie stars or TV stars or rock stars or hip-hop artists who are congratulated because now I'm being true to myself, my real self. What they're doing is they're cementing their eternal fate. So Anonymous, you've got a choice to make. That choice is to be with Jesus forever or be separated from Jesus forever. And the moment we say it's not fair, we have to remember that no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. All men, mankind, we're all sexual beings. But if you're not married to somebody of the opposite gender, sex is off the table. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday program. Phones have been quiet. We'd sure love your calls. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to our final 30 minutes of the Wednesday show, 340-9585. It occurred to me during the break that my answer to the last question, the anonymous question, um, it sounds so overwhelmingly unfair. And I've had people say this, you expect me to live without sex? The answer is yes. And and the only way that we can we can help you understand this is that if you're looking for fair, Jesus wouldn't have gotten on that cross for your sins and mine. I tell our church here all the time that God never asks us to do something that he hasn't first done for us. Jesus begged his father to have this cup of crucifixion pass from him. The father said no. Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels in an instant, and he refused to do so. Jesus, the only perfect person who's ever lived, was beaten mercilessly. The wrath of his father poured out upon him, forsaken for the only time in in history eternally. Forsaken by his own father. That's not fair. When the father himself said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And yet because God the father whom Jesus wanted to please, that was his only purpose. Considered you and me so valuable that he sacrificed his son. That's not fair. So those are Jesus' credentials to ask us to do some things that don't seem fair. 
We know they are. We can't fight the world that we live in in the sense that we shouldn't expect anybody to understand. But the truth of the matter remains God demands holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And um, Anonymous, I know you were talking about a homosexual relationship, uh, a bigger problem, a, a far, far, far bigger problem in the church, in every church, is heterosexuals who are having sex outside of the bonds of marriage. And people who live like this, that's the characteristic, the habit of their life, people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's just that simple. Here is Logan. He has a question. He said, if believers don't go to a priest for forgiveness, how do we know we are forgiven? Logan, we know we're forgiven because that's what the Word of God says. Now, obviously, you're writing about a Catholic or an Orthodox background, but there's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, Paul writes. Just one. That's why Job cried out, if only there were a man who could stand between me and God. I can't reach to him and he can't reach to me if there were only a man between us. Well, Jesus is that man. When the Bible tells us that we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Confess means agree with God that it's sin. It's not just say, okay, I did it. But to agree with God that it's evil. And then ask for forgiveness. And God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So, Logan, I've, for the life of me, I've never understood people that come from a Catholic or an Orthodox background who pray to saints or who go to a priest for the absolution of their sins uh, when, when that man has no power at all to forgive anyone of anything. Now, as pastors, as priests, we can say your sins are forgiven based on what God has already declared to us on what he's done. But that forgiveness doesn't come from us. And those, I'm going to be very direct, those evil church traditions are actually insulating people from Jesus. The pastor is just a man. The priest is just a man. Especially in the Catholic Church, we've seen just what clay feet those men really have. And they have no power. When I got your question, Logan, I was thinking of that tragic scene uh, after 9-11 when there was a Catholic priest uh, in Manhattan who was running down the street and he was granting absolution to all those who were dying on 9-11. Faced with this horror, he was doing what came natural to him. But he had no power, no authority. God would look at him and say, who do you think you are? And so the way we know we're forgiven is simple. Jesus tells us. And why we would take the word of a man instead of believing in, holding on to the word of God has forever, forever escaped me. Now, I wasn't raised in a church background. I've shared that on this program before. But it simply makes no sense to me that the fact that you were taught that in the church tradition that you grew up in 
You need to open your Bible. See what they're teaching you that isn't true. Why we would ever think that a man can do something that only God can do. In fact, the Bible says only God can forgive sins. That's what uh, Jesus was accused of when he pronounced the forgiveness of sins. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees accused him of blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Who do you think you are? And Jesus would have looked at him and said, well, that's right. You know who I'm saying I am. I am he. Jesus didn't say, oh, no, no. Sins can be forgiven by others. Only God can forgive sins. It's very, very important. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. There's a question that um, I'm going to make some enemies. This is from Les. He says, Pastor Ron, like you, I am anti-Calvinism, but why do you believe Calvinists are not heretical? Uh, Les, as you're referring to, I get the question all the time, uh, is Calvinism um, uh, heresy? It's not. Uh, many of the great men and women of God throughout the centuries are Calvinists or Reformed theologians. And, and while I can say clearly they're wrong, uh, they're, they're not messing with the character and the nature of God. They're not changing the person of God. What they've got is a, 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 a false doctrine of salvation based on a false concept of who God is. The God of Calvinism is a God who just arbitrarily chooses, you're saved, you're not, you're saved, you're not. It means that he teases people with the gospel, which is good news for everyone. By teasing, I mean saying, well, here's the good news, but not for you, because I didn't choose you. Uh, so it's it's really, really, really bad doctrine, but it is not a heretical doctrine. Charles Spurgeon was a Calvinist. Uh, John MacArthur is a Calvinist. Alistair Begg, who's on the local radio station here, he he is a Calvinist. They are believers. They're going to be in heaven. They're just wrong when it comes to... Okay, we are back. We apologize for the technical difficulties. We had a problem on the line, and I don't know uh, exactly when it happened. So uh, I was answering a question from Les about Calvinism not being heretical, and I don't know if you got any of my explanation or not, so let me just go on to other questions. And thank you for your patience. We would love your live calls at 340 9585. Craig is asking the question, will we have to keep the Sabbath for eternity in heaven? Uh, Craig, of course not. The answer is that we will be with the Sabbath. Now remember Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4 says that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We will be with our Sabbath rest. Sabbath was a picture of rest that can only be found in Christ. And so the idea here is is not that we have to do anything. We'll be with our rest. In other words, we'll, we'll, we'll be realizing the goal of our salvation. No more work to do. No more worries about pleasing God. We will always have pleased him because we will be like him as he is. Now, Craig, let me also say this. Um, the way your question is phrased, will we have to keep the Sabbath, suggests, at least to, to my mind, that you are a Sabbath keeper now. 
Um, the Sabbath has been fulfilled. Remember, the Sabbath was given not to Christians. The Sabbath was given to Jews. And when we read Exodus, we have to realize to whom God is speaking. And this legalistic notion that, no, we have to keep the Sabbath, that God never changed the Sabbath, is nonsense. Jesus, when he entered this world, became our Sabbath rest. And so today, as a Christian, every day is a day to rest in Christ. Every day is a day to worship the Lord. And nowhere should we sort of have the the, the idea that the Sabbath means we have to go to church, we have to do this. The Sabbath is a way of life. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So not only did we not have to keep the Sabbath eternity in heaven, we will because we want to, we'll be with Jesus, but we don't have to keep the Sabbath now. In fact, as you've heard me say on this program, Craig, um, the Sabbath was changed, or not the Sabbath, but the, but the day of worship was changed by the first century church, the Church of the Apostles, the foundation upon which the New Testament Church, or New Testament church is being built. The Sabbath was changed from the seventh day to the first day of the week, honoring the most holy day in our faith, the day the tomb was empty. The Resurrection Sunday is when they worshipped corporately as Christians in our New Testaments. Here's a question from Rachel. She asks, do I believe that, if, that there's only one person that God has for us to marry? Um, Rachel, I don't believe that. Now, let me, I, I want to be really, really clear here. Uh, the person you are married to, if you are married, is the one person God has for you. Period. Doesn't matter how it started. Paul and I, we started our relationship in sin 49 plus years ago. Uh, she is the only one for me. As a believer, when I got saved, I gave my heart to Jesus. He asked me to take care of her because she is the only one. There was no option of divorce. There's no better hope in the future. She's the only one for me. But as single people, this sort of fantasy idea that there's only one person, we have to sit and wait until God brings that one person, uh, is, is nowhere found in Scripture. Nowhere at all. truth is we can all fall in love with a lot of different people. But when we meet one, then how we respond, how we represent Jesus in that relationship is the key. So there isn't just one person that you could fall in love with or one person that God has for you. What a terrible, terrible thing that would be to have this laying over you all the time, hanging over your head. You know, well, how do I know? I, I love her, but, but I don't know. How do I know she's the one that God has? If you love a girl, if you love a guy, the person you love loves Jesus, then that's the relationship to pursue. It really is that simple. It's not mystical at all. It's not something's difficult for us to understand. We make it too complicated. So if you're not married, 
and you want to be married, God will bring somebody along the path. You love them if the relationship honors God, if you have a lot in common, mostly Jesus, if you're compatible, if, if he or she is attractive to you, all those things matter a great deal. But the relationship from the beginning has to honor the Lord. Rachel, I've had a lot of people, men and women, come to me over the years and say, well, well, I know God brought him into my life, or I know God brought her into my life. And I always tell them, if, if you know God brought them in, first question is, are they a believer? If the answer is no, God didn't bring them in. If they are a believer and you know God brought them in, the next question is, are you sexually pure in this relationship? Because how would it be to thank God by bringing somebody in your life, by defiling a relationship, defiling the person? So it's very important that we understand our responsibility. So... Rachel, if you fall in love with somebody and that person loves Jesus, then go ahead and pursue it. Hope that helps. Let's go to Phyllis calling on line one from San Antonio. Phyllis, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, hello, Pastor Ron. Hi, Phyllis. Well, I pray you and Paul are doing well. I told you Sunday I had a question for you, and I'm sure you could clear that up. I was in okay. Revelation. I was in Revelations two six, and if you can explain that, and also you said something about Charles Spurgeon. I wanted to give you get your comment on him because the I think the uh, radio was going off air or something was going on. Okay, I can do that. If you could clear those two up, I would appreciate it. Thank you, thank Phyllis. you kindly. Uh, let me do Spurgeon first, because um, we're inside, we got four minutes. Uh, Spurgeon is a giant of our faith. Now, he had uh, Reformed theology, but uh, God used him mightily. And Spurgeon is a guy that died in utter disgrace. I mean, he was completely rejected by the religious community around him, and, and yet God has vindicated him in major ways. And I don't know a single pastor that doesn't read and often quote Spurgeon, regardless of whether they're Reformed or not. So um, the Treasury of the Psalms is is a, a, a treasure um, written by Spurgeon. And uh, so know, uh, the, the, uh, you know where he's coming from, but I can't recommend his writings enough. So, fellas, he is, he is a good writer, but he was Reformed in his theology. Um, Revelation chapter 2, verse 6. This is Paul, or uh, Jesus' letter, rather, to the church at Ephesus. And after telling them that they've lost, lost their first love and tells them how to fix it, he says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, to understand who the Nicolaitans are, and the Nicolaitans are referred to in one of the other letters uh, written by Jesus to the churches, uh, the Nicolaitans... Um, it, 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 they were called this, they come from two words. Nico means above in Latin. Laity or laetens, the people above the people. And this is um, a condemnation of the practice of the priesthood over the people. And in the early churches, and it's practiced all the way today, priests are given a certain 
uh, position of authority or control over the people. God never intended for the priests to be uh, the intermediary at all. And in the early church, there was a certain group of people that passed themselves off as being super spiritual. And, uh, you know, you you got to get all your questions answered from us. And, and Jesus saying, I hate that. I came and the priest's job is that the people would have access to me, not be cut off from me. And that's what they were doing. And to their credit, the church in Ephesus hated the practice of Nicolaitans. They were ministering to the people as being among the people, the priesthood of believers. And uh, the practice of Nicolaitans, as detestable as they were then, they are equally detestable now. And this is one of those things that you find, especially in the Catholic Church or in the Orthodox churches. Uh, there is sort of a, a sense that the, the, the priests are... Uh, better or more spiritual or have more understanding or insight. And Phyllis, that was never what the Lord intended. So they hated the practice of Nicolaitan. Jesus says he hates it. When Jesus says he hates something, we need to pay attention. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Phyllis. I appreciate that question. We're about to close out for the day. Remember, tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with us on the date day edition of the show. I am certain we now have all of our technical difficulties worked out. Thank you for your patience and staying with me uh, during the technical difficulties. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I need the word to stand on.